Welcome back to Voice for the Voiceless. Here we have Alex Golden, Daniel Patchen, Sam Rusick, and Daniel McGuire, and we have a special guest. Hi, my name is Ariel Berger, and uh, I'm a traveling teacher, and an author, and an artist, and a rabbi, and I wrote a book about my teacher, Elie Wiesel. He's a special role model for this topic. Um, Ariel, can you just can you describe Elie Wiesel and some of some of his contributions? The reason why we considered him a role model. Sure, Elie Wiesel was a Holocaust survivor. He wrote a book that many people have read called Night, and he was known first for being a witness to that experience, making that experience available to a lot of people in the world. Although his book had a hard time finding a publisher. He went through like 17 publishers, they all rejected it. And when they finally printed it, they printed a thousand copies or 1500 copies and it sold very slowly. But he helped over time to bring the Holocaust to the consciousness of the world. And he also used his experience of the Holocaust to drive and motivate his activism around the world for people who were, who were voiceless, people who were suffering in places like Cambodia or Yugoslavia or Rwanda, Darfur. And he was the person who was best known, I think, for traveling to those places and writing about his experience and bringing people's attention so that the world would notice. And unlike what happened during the Holocaust, the world would speak up and say something and protest and perhaps even stop what was happening. Um, Ar- Ariel, um, can you uh, like uh, say your uh, what, what your connection is to? Uh, do you have a connection, and if so, what's your connection to uh, Elie Wiesel? Sure. So I, I'm a close student of Elie Wiesel. I met him when I was a teenager. I was 15 years old when I met him, and I became his student at Boston University, where he taught for almost 40 years. And then later I became his, I was his teaching assistant at Boston University and his doctoral student. So um, I spent a lot of time with him learning, studying, studying Torah together, talking about world issues, asking him for behind the scenes information about what was really going on in the news because he knew, he spoke, he had conversations with presidents and prime ministers and the head of the United Nations. and so. I would ask him, like, what's really going on with Iran? What's the real story? And he would tell me. And I also asked him personal questions and asked for his advice. And, and um, he guided me in many, many ways that are still important to me. Um, so you wrote the book Witness. And I read the book Night, actually, a few, uh, um, about a year ago. It was a great book. So Night was an autobiography about his experiences in the concentration camps just kind of what you got out of it so what is what is your book about how like what how does it differentiate from night well Elie Wiesel wrote many other books also night was the first one and it was as you said it was his story of going through the holocaust Um, and in it he talks about his struggles with faith and losing faith in God losing faith in human beings and in the world and over time he became a teacher and many people don't know that Elie Wiesel was a teacher and if you asked him who are you what's your life about he always said I'm a teacher sometimes he said I'm a storyteller too but usually he said I'm a teacher 
that is what drives everything else that I do. So my book is called Witness Lessons from Elie Wiesel's Classroom because it's really about his classroom. It's about his, his legacy as a teacher and the lessons that we can draw from his role as a teacher, what actually happened in the classroom with students from around the world of different ages. Um, and how did he do this kind of magical, very important thing of awakening people to feel like they can make a difference? What inspired you to write this book? The first thing is that at a certain point in 2008, I said to Professor Wiesel, we had a, a weekly meeting, and I said to him, you know, somebody needs to write a book about your classroom. Nobody has really done that yet. And no one knows about this whole side of your life. It's an important part of you. And he said, you're right. You need to do it. You need to write a book about my classroom. So that was the, the first inspiration was that he, he literally told me I have to do it. But, but mm -hmm. deeper than that, I sat in his classroom watching people, watching people be really transformed, watching people feel like they were, they were awakened in some way, that their, their, their moral sense became really strong and really clear to them and they felt empowered to make a difference. And I'm a teacher also, so I, I've seen a lot of teaching situations where that doesn't happen. I've seen a lot of like, bad teaching mm -hmm. and learning. So I wondered, how did, he, how did he do this? And could I capture his specific tools for awakening people to moral power? And that was really the, the deeper inspiration for writing the book. How did you come to meet Elie Wiesel? Well, my, my stepfather knew him because my stepfather, Mati Lazar, is a, a conductor and a driving force in, in Jewish music from, mm -hmm. for decades. And he and Elie Wiesel did a lot of musical work together. And so um, in 1990, when I was 15, Mati said to me, why don't you come along to this lecture I'm going to at the 92nd Street Y in New York and maybe you can meet him after the lecture. So he introduced me to Elie Wiesel. And after the lecture, which was, it was a lecture to like, I think it was like 1,500 people in the audience. There was a little room and a line where you could go up to Elie Wiesel and say hi. And so I finally got to the front of the line and he, he saw Mati and he smiled and then he saw me and he held his hand out and he said his name. Like I had no idea who he was with total humility, even though he had just given a lecture to 1,500 people and he was like a superstar, he was very, very humble also. And that was the beginning. And he said something like, come talk to me sometime. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while to build up the, the holy chutzpah and the courage to go see him, but eventually I did, and that was the beginning of our relationship. Um, about how long did it take you to write the book? It depends how you count. It, it took a year and a half to actually write the book, but for about eight years before that, I was taking notes, and even before I knew I was going to write a book, I was taking notes in the classroom because a lot of things were happening that I wanted to remember. So I have a couple of boxes of notes, and that was all preparation. So when I sat down to begin writing, which was a very, which is a very intimidating thing, like I'm going to write a book, that's a little scary, right? It's a big project I had the benefit of starting with a lot of material already so I wasn't starting from scratch and then the actual writing was 
a year and a half, including the editing. Like, what kind of class were you taking? So Eloisel taught a class that was called Literature of Memory. And it was always called Literature of Memory, colon, and then the specific class title. Like, Literature of Memory, colon, Hidden and Banned Books which was all about books that had been buried during the Holocaust or books that were burned by, by people who wanted to censor certain books in, in either in this country or earlier in history, or literature of memory, faith, and heresy, which is all these novels and plays about uh, the Salem witch trials and, or other, other situations of heretics or people who were accused of heresy. But it was always literature of memory, and the class was a, really a combination that you don't find very often of different kinds of learning. There was, it was a literature class, but it was a combination of literature, philosophy, history, religion, and theology. All of those things were sort of swirled together into what is sometimes called a humanities class. Um, but it was, really about, it was really about moral transformation and how do you become a moral person who can make a difference in the world for good. And the class you imagine a room, a big room that's filled with students. There were about 70 students in the room, um, sometimes sitting on the windowsills or sitting in the aisles because it, it was so packed. And Professor Wiesel sat, stood. He always stood at the front of the room. He had a special chair that I, my job was to bring the chair to the room for the class and then at the end of the class bring it back. But he never sat in it. He always just stood behind it. But I still brought it anyway. And he would have conversations. It wasn't a lecture. It wasn't like someone just talking at you for a long time. It was a conversation about the book that we had read together. He would ask questions, and students would ask their questions, and it became a dialogue. That was really the, the style of the class. Ariel, is this your first book, or have you written any others? It is my first book. It is my first book. I wrote a dissertation, but that's very different. And it was... Uh, I said before that it's intimidating to write a book. I think it's more intimidating to write a first book. Do you think you'll write any others after this book? Yeah. So you said you were like really nervous to like write your first book because you've never written a book before, but did you have people like to guide you uh, while writing your book? Well, it's interesting. I haven't really told anyone this, but I, I had several quotes from, from Professor Wiesel up in front of me as I was writing. One time he said something to me that is, I think, very relevant to you guys thinking about voice for the voiceless, because the voiceless can be people who are suffering in a, in a certain part of the world, but, but you can also feel voiceless sometimes, right? We can all feel that way sometimes. So one time he said to me, he said, your voice is as important as mine. In fact, one time I was, I was talking about writing a book about him after that conversation in 2008. He said, you know, you probably have other books you should write first not just about me. And, and he said, your voice is as important as my voice. So I printed that out. I had it in front of me when I was writing. It's very helpful. Whenever I, whenever I was um, stuck in the writing process, I would just sort of glance at that and feel a little bit of a kick of inspiration and, and his belief in me. That was very helpful. And then there are many writers whose work I, I followed for many, many years and who inspire me. And I kept a small, a small shelf of books next to me as I was writing and every once in a while I would pull a book down from the shelf and just open a page at random read a few words to get some inspiration 
Um, you mentioned that you do not think you you mentioned that you think you'll write another book. Do you have any plans ongoing or in the future to write a book about something and what would the subject be? Yeah, I have a few things that I've been working on for a while. Uh, one book is really about it's really about creativity mm-hmm. and religion. Um, so I even have a book proposal all, already all done about that book. And it's, it's really about how can we connect the roots of any tradition, like Judaism, with the kind of wild self-expression that comes when you're doing art or music or any kind of, any kind of personal expression. That's one book. I have another book I want to write about Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, a great Hasidic storyteller and master. And, and then I have some other ideas that I'm not quite ready to share yet mm-hmm. that are in the fiction realm. Oh, that would be interesting. Um, did the idea of writing a book first come to you when you had this conversation with Elie Wiesel or before, before, um, before that conversation... Did you have plans to to be an author? I never thought I would be an author, but I always wanted to write, and I was always writing. I was writing short pieces, shorter essays about things. You know, you know what essay means, literally. When I think of essay, I think of uh, a, a piece of writing that's usually three paragraphs or so, four. So paragraphs. that's often what it means in school. But the word essay really means to try something out. An essay is a way of trying out ideas. Some people figure out what they believe and then they write it down. For me, it's, it's writing that helps me understand what I'm thinking or what I feel about something or what I believe. So I was always doing that. I was always writing, even if it was just in my journal or short pieces for uh, you know, a, a publication or a blog post or something. I was often writing, but I never expected to write a book until around that conversation. With, with Professor Wiesel. That was like a kick in the pants. You have to write a book. When a teacher says that to you, you know, you have to take it seriously. Did you look at him as a mentor? Well, very, that's a dumb question. So. That's pr- a great question. Very much so. And the question is, what is a mentor, right? What do you guys think a mentor is as opposed to a teacher? I think a mentor, a, a teacher teaches you, like, well, yeah, teaches you things. About, like just topics, but I feel like a mentor. I feel like a mentor teaches you val- teaches you values. That's a beautiful definition. There was a certain point where I realized that the questions that are hardest for me in my life about the world, the ones that I can't answer and I can't find anyone to answer, whenever I went to Professor Wiesel, he didn't answer my questions almost ever. He responded to my questions with more questions. But his questions were better than my questions, and they were very helpful. And I would always walk away from those meetings with a, a, lot, of, a lot of ideas and a lot of inspiration and a lot of clarity. And I would sort of take a week or so to digest what he had said and the things we had talked about. And I would realize, wait a minute, I, I feel much more clear and strong about this issue, whatever it was, personal issue, issue about the question about the world, as a result of meeting him. And after that happened a few times, and even more so over the, the years, when it happened a lot of times, I realized this is someone who really can be a mentor for me. He's not telling me what to think. 
that's important when you're looking for a mentor. You don't want someone who's going to tell you what to think. You want someone who's going to give you better tools to figure things out for yourself. And that's what he did for me. So the topic of the, the podcast is giving a, vo- giving a voice to the voice, giving a voice to the voiceless, giving a voice to those who are almost, ha- almost have less power than, than others. So what do you, from this book, what do you want people to generally take out of it? What's the lesson that you want them to understand from reading about what Elie, was, what Elie Wiesel taught you? Well, the first thing is that Elie Wiesel himself was a really powerful role model for the kind of work that you are doing here. And when you look around at the world and you see all the things that are happening, all the suffering and all the unnecessary suffering in the world, all the ways that human beings cause pain to other human beings in small ways and in massively big ways, we need role models, right? We need people who can inspire us and show us the way how to respond, how to react, so that the world starts to change. That's what we want. We talk about it a lot, but we don't see the change we want to see. Elie Wiesel wrote a book called The Jews of Silence. Do you know that book? Have you heard of this book? It was about the Jews who were trapped behind the Iron Curtain in the Soviet Union, refuseniks, Jews who couldn't leave the Soviet Union. And he wrote this in, I think, in the 60s. I could be wrong. Um, I think it was in the late 60s, maybe it was early 70s. And he said, everyone misunderstands the title of that book. Everyone thinks the Jews of silence were the, the Russian Jews who were silenced by their experience being trapped in the Soviet Union. But the truth is, the Jews of silence are the Jews who are outside the Soviet Union who are not doing anything, right? And so when he experienced the Holocaust, it was unbelievably, unimaginably terrible. But the worst part of it afterwards was realizing, he said, that the world, the American government, other governments, the British government, the radio stations like BBC Radio, they knew what was happening. They knew what the Nazis were doing. And they still did nothing or almost nothing to make a difference or to intervene or to stop it. And when he discovered that after the war, it was devastating. It was a certain kind of silence that was psychologically harder than the suffering itself. Right? The suffering of the Holocaust was unbelievably terrible. But the realization that people knew about it and still nothing happened, no one intervened, was psychologically devastating. So he said the lesson of that is that when anyone is suffering in the world, when anyone doesn't have a voice, we have to be their voice. We have to speak up. If we can change governmental policy, great. If we can call our senators and congresspeople and say, you've got to do something about what's happening in Syria right now, do it. Make those phone calls. But even if you know that what you do is not going to make a tiny bit of difference, you still have to speak up so that at least those people know that they're not alone. At least they know that there are people somewhere in the world who care about what's happening to them. And now we have tremendous capacity to do that through social media, right? Just to post information and say, I protest, even if it doesn't make any practical difference. That was one of his important messages. You have to speak up. You have an obligation to speak up when people are suffering. The lesson of this book is that I think it's possible 
to take those big ideas and those big responsibilities and break them down into smaller chunks that we can all apply in our own lives. So one of the things I write at the very end of the book, which is like summing up, summing up the book, it's not a spoiler. Um, I wrote in this postscript to, to the book, what does it mean to be a student of Elie Wiesel? Does it mean standing up courageously against oppression? Does it mean traveling the world bearing witness to suffering? Does it mean becoming a fierce activist, disturbing the complacency of politicians and warriors alike, making the world a better place? It might mean any of these things, but I believe it begins more modestly. I don't think Professor Wiesel expected all of us to act on the international stage, nor did he wish for his students to imitate him. You don't have to be a saint or the embodiment of an ideal. You don't have to have the word humanitarian on a business card. You don't need recognition or fame or great influence. Being a student of Elie Wiesel means being yourself and cultivating your humanity, your sensitivity to others in every moment. So then I go on and talk about what that looks like when you're walking by someone who's being ignored in camp or at school or on the street or someone who's hungry. What do you do? Do you engage? Do you see the person? Or do you turn away? That's the fundamental lesson, is don't turn away. Do you think that lesson has like changed your views on life and now you're going to start speaking out about different like topics? It's definitely changed my view on life. It has led me to a, a sense that I live with every day that I'm not doing enough which I think is true. I'm not doing enough to help. I do more in my smaller, the smaller sphere of my life to help people around me. Um, and I've noticed that over time. Um, when things pop up on my Facebook feed, uh, images of hungry children in Syria, for example, you know, I have that impulse to look away because I want to just protect myself. I don't want to get sad. So I don't want to look at those pictures. But I look at those pictures because I feel a responsibility to, because I'm a student of Professor Wiesel, because I hear his voice saying, don't turn away. So I look, and then I try to not just get sad, but translate that feeling into some kind of action, even if it's small, even if it's reposting, even if it's letting a few people know about something that's happening that they can participate in to make the world better, even if it's small. It doesn't have to be big. But a lot of small actions can add up to a, a different future. And we need a different future. Do you think it is a safe assumption to say that uh, Elie Wiesel has changed your life? A hundred percent, yeah. In so many ways. And in ways that are still unfolding. You know, I, I was writing the book. While I was writing the book, he passed away. And in the year after he passed away, I was, I was going through a lot of sadness and grieving and also but I was also feeling so grateful for him and I started watching videos of him teaching online there there are lectures that you can watch on the 92nd Street Y website and the Boston University archive website and every day I would watch part of a lecture and read more of his works and I was learning so much from him after he passed away so it continues to unfold even this week at camp there's a book in the Sifria, in the library, um, a, a book of Elie Wiesel's teachings that's not very well known. 
and I opened it up a couple of times in camp and found things I had never seen before. Is this your first year as a visitor or working at camp? It is. Are you enjoying it so far? I am a lot. I'm sad to be leaving. I'm, I'm actually leaving tomorrow night. Thank you for visiting camp and are you considering coming back next year? I'm very open to it. Yeah, there were some really great moments here of learning and connecting. Do you want to share some of them? Sure. I don't want to like embarrass anyone <laughs> who was in, in those moments, but I'll you don't I'll, have to say I'll, names. I'll just say that I, I got to learn with the Omanut uh, teaching staff mm-hmm. last night, and that was really really awesome to That's cool. to learn study some Torah, some Jewish teaching about creativity with them. It was really inspiring for me, and I think they enjoyed it. And I got to learn with the Machon Bank. Um, which wasn't planned. It sort of like happened along the way, and it was great. It's really, really great, and very, very inspiring, and like incredible, just incredibly smart, committed young people who have a lot to give to the world. Thank you. Thank you so much. Like one of the things that I'm thinking about all of this uh, beautiful interview is that uh, Ariel, you told us that you you met Ali Vizar for the first time when you were 15 and you are uh, 14 right now, right? Yes. C- can you think about like uh, like the, what would happen like in, in your age uh, having like a such a life-changing experience that they really change your approach into the world like how would it look like can you imagine such a thing no no I guess I don't really know like wh- I, I'm not really like a hundred percent sure yet like what I want I'm not like a hundred percent sure what I want to do when I grow up what I want to be so I guess so I guess yes, I can't. Im- I can't imagine just one. Well, I can't imagine having like a life-changing experience. Even just hearing all of these, all of these lessons you learn, you you've learned, you learned from Ali Wiesel, and I still remember reading, like, like, like my el my in- my English class this year. I've I've always enjoyed, but like not fully been, like committed to it but when I read when I read Ellie Wiesel's book Night I felt just I felt so touched by I, I felt so touched by the reading just his 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 crisis of faith of humanity losing all of that and then his fight to gain it all back it was very it was just very tu- it was very touching so even just reading that book was a very a very life-changing experience experience for hmm. a very life-changing experience for me. Thank you for sharing that. I want to share two things with you guys. One is that how many of you have read Night? So, I want you to know if you if you've read it or you're going to read it that that Elie Wiesel, I, I knew him very very well. He was an incredibly joyful person. You need to know that because when you read Night, you, you end the story where the book ends, which is on right after liberation, right at the end of the war. And he was broken at that point. And the last line of night is very intense. He's looking in a mirror and he says, a corpse was looking back and I shall never forget that gaze, the look on its face. 
but the person I knew was a person of great joy. Look at this, look at this photo. You, you, listeners can't see it, but it's in in the inside page of the book, one of the first pages of the book. This is Elie Wiesel teaching. Just be careful; it has all these papers inside. So if you hold it tightly at the bottom, you can pass it around. And just look at that smile. Like he has so much, so much joy of learning and having conversations with his students. And he chose he chose to be it's okay, he chose to be a teacher, which is an incredible act of hopefulness. So the first thing I want you to know is that if Elie Wiesel, who went through all the things he went through, could be a joyful person and could choose joy and could choose life, then we can too. We can too. That's the first thing. And the second thing is to David's question you never know what's going to happen when you have a meeting with somebody at any age. I, I didn't know when I was 15 that my meeting with him would really affect my life so, so deeply. You know, I thought it was like a one-time meeting with a, with a famous person. That's kind of cool. That's all I thought it was. And it became so much more than that. So you just never know. And that's why Professor Rizal used to talk about Elijah the prophet, Elio Anavi. And one of the things about all the legends about Eliyahu Hanavi is that we don't, we never know who Eliyahu Hanavi is, who he looks like. He could be anyone. He could be the beggar on the street, the homeless person on the street, the stranger who pops his head into your shul or your dinner table. And the reason for that, he said, is that you never know, and therefore you have to treat every person as if they could be Elijah the prophet. And that's another way of saying that you never know when you have a meeting with somebody, an encounter with somebody, how powerful and special it's going to be. So bring yourself to it. Be fully present with it. Listen. Show up. Ask the questions you want to ask. Share your ideas. Be willing to be challenged. You never know where it's going to go. On that note, we'd like to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Um, this will be an amazing podcast. Um, thank you to our listeners for listening. Um, I learned a lot. I did not know much about Elie Wiesel, and I've came, come back from this lesson with learning a lot about his resilience and the struggles he's endured in his life, but how he did not let that beat him. And thank you, you all. And if you want to know... Some more of these lessons you can read the book Witness by Ariel Berger. Thank you. You can find it on Barnes and Noble or Amazon. Or my website. www.arielberger.com. We will voice for the voiceless.
מרגישים קיץ באוויר. מרגישים קיץ באוויר. כל רמה מאה ושתיים שלוש מרגישים קיץ באוויר. 